Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We ask you to guide and lead in all that we do and, and say and as we read and as we look into your word to understand. And we just thank you for this evening and ask you to give us a wonderful time in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Psalm 48, starting at verse 1. One. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is known in her palaces for a refuge. For lo, the kings were assembled, they passed by together. They saw it, and, and so they marveled. They were troubled and hastened, hastened away. Fear took upon, hold upon them there, and pain as a woman in travail. Thou breakest the ships of Tarshish with the east wind. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, the city of our God. God will establish it forever, Selah. We have thought of thy loving kindness, O God, in the midst of thy temple. According to thy name, O Lord, so is thy praise unto the ends of the earth. Thy right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of, their, of, thy, of your judgments. Walk about Zion and go around about her. Tell the towers thereof. Mark, her well, mark you well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces that you may tell it to the generations following. For this is God... For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. All right. Bulwark. Bulwarks, your uh, fortress. Your big thick walls and your fortress. Uh, is that what a bulwark works? Mm -hmm. Yes. It's defenses, protection. All right. This, this verse, I love it because this first, the first two verses were a song that we used to sing in church all the time. And maybe we'll introduce it here because it's a great song, uh, you know. But it says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness. You think about this. Great is our Lord and greatly to be praised. And that's powerful when you think about it. He is worthy of praise. He is worthy of great praise. And this is one of the things we talk about oftentimes is, are we really praising God? Do we spend time praising him, commending him, lifting him up? You know, when it talks in the Hebrew about glorifying, and they just use the glorify here, but glorify means to make heavy, make heavy with praise. And this one is saying that he is to be commended. He is to be commended in praise. And it says that he is in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness. And this is referring to Jerusalem and Mount Zion, or uh, Mount Moriah, or whatever term you want to use for the mountain that Jerusalem sits on. The Jews talk about Jerusalem with great praise because it is the city of God. But it is, from everything that people say, it's a beautiful city sitting on a high mountain that you can see from all over the place in Israel. And I'd love to see it personally someday. All I've seen is the pictures of it. Oh, yes. And it is a beautiful city from the pictures, even it's in today's... Crowded it's crowded, It's All cities are crowded. Yeah. All cities are crowded. And it gets more crowded during the, the festival times. Not so much now without the temple, but... Uh, but it says, greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness. You know, Mount Zion, the, the, the city where God dwells. And the thing is, he's going to dwell in Zion for all of the millennial kingdom. When Jesus returns, his footsteps on Mount Olivet, it splits in half. And he's going to rule the millennial kingdom from Jerusalem for a thousand years. So does just plain Zion mean like the mountain? Zion is, oh, Jerusalem, it's the mountain, the Jerusalem, no, it's that whole... That's one thing I didn't understand a lot of times in the Bible. It says a lot of times it's Zion. Like Zion, is, it's, it's the Jewish, Jewish 
the center of the Jew, 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 Judaism, Jerusalem. Okay, because I, I, I keep thinking of Zion, not Zionist. And, when, and the Jews even to this day are called okay. Zionist or those who want Jerusalem to be their, oh. be their capital and make, it, make, Jerusalem, make Israel what it's supposed to be according to the Bible. So when you see Zion, it is talking about Jerusalem or that whole mountain that Jerusalem sits on. A beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. So it sits on the north side of the mountain primarily, uh, but it's the city of the great king. And you think about this, after the millennial kingdom, God destroys all of, all of everything on this world. He destroys the heavens and the earth. He creates a new heaven and earth. And out from heaven comes the new Jerusalem. He is going to rule from Jerusalem for all of eternity. Now, this, of course, this Jerusalem is nothing like the current Jerusalem. I mean, it's only a small city, you know, 15,000 15, miles wide, 15 miles long, 15 miles high. It's just a small city. Uh, you know, covers, cover, covers half the United States in its size, but just a small place. And that's where God will rule from for eternity. Uh, you know, but it's the whole idea for the Jews that Mount Zion, Jerusalem, Mariah, all the different names of it, and we've covered this during different studies. We want, and this help, and this is, and you're right, Sharon. It is important for us to kind of know when we read these, what are we talking about? Yeah, because I lost my Bible. Hey, where's Mount Zion? What what is yeah, Mount Zion? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's important for us to understand that Mariah, Calvary, the Temple Mount, Jerusalem, Mount Zion are all referring to the same place. Okay. They're just different names for the same place, depending on what time frame you're in and what and what they're trying to bring out. Uh, Zion usually refers to Israel and the, head, the the seat of God more than more than Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is that seat, so it's they are interchangeable at the same time. So Zion is like Jerusalem. It is Jerusalem. That's what I have. I'm, I'm slow at learning. That. That's fine. And, but it, unless you're ever taught that, you don't really realize it. You read all through, the, especially Psalms. Zion is that poetic name for, for Jerusalem. Now it's, it's through the prophets as well, but it is really heavy in, in the Psalms. Uh, especially when you get to the, the Psalms of Ascension that, that talk about Jerusalem and going to the temple. Uh, so you're going to see Zion a lot as we go forward into, in, the, in this. And it's all talking about Jerusalem. And that, that mighty. But they say beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth. Well, right now, is, Jerusalem is not the joy of the whole earth. But you know, it's interesting that that city is a holy site for the three major religions of this world. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity all see Jerusalem as a very important city. Uh, so most of the world still to this day is seeing Jerusalem as important. You okay? Jerusalem is still seen as important by, especially Jews. Jews see it as very important. So the people like nowadays, they still think, I mean, they're keeping a tradition as a holy city. It's still a holy city. Yeah. And it's a holy city I mean, to three different... Now how, how everything changes so much. Uh, and this one hasn't. Yeah. Judaism has always held... Jerusalem is a high place. Christianity looks at it as, a, as an important place because that's where Jesus died. It's where he did a lot of his yeah. ministry. It's where he was buried and resurrected. That's where he was born. Yeah. Well, born just outside of it by about, by about 17 miles or so. Uh, you know, so Jerusalem and that area have been important for Christianity. And then uh, Muhammad tried, has tried to usurp it into his... His one of it's one of the three top holy cities of the the uh, uh, Islamic world. What are they? Mecca, Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem. Medina, his birthplace. Uh, so it's an important city to most of the major religious things. So it is still a very important one. Jesus is going to rule from Jerusalem for a thousand years and then follow the millennial kingdom, uh, all, all the millennial kingdom, and then all of eternity. So Jerusalem will always have a key point in, in the life of, of God and his people and us because <laughs> we're going to spend eternity there. Uh, we'll leave in and out of there, obviously, but the city will have the, that will be where our, 
our mansions are and then whatever else we like, have to do. Are they even the United States and stuff so different than Jerusalem and stuff like we're like an outcast in a way because it is. I mean, we're not, I'm trying to think of the word. Because to me, the United States is so different than the holy city. I'm thinking that the holy city, like, we're not like that and we should be. Well, the way it is right now in Jerusalem <laughs> I know, I know, I know we shouldn't be like that. is it's quite weird. an interesting place because most Jews right now, and then what we're getting on, most Jews right now are, are atheists in their practice. They claim to be Jews. They understand that they're, uh, you know, they some some of them understand that the land was promised to them. But the majority of the Jews are practicing atheists. They're not. They're not following God. But that's a holy city. They shouldn't be thinking that. Well, it, it is it's a special city. Even they think. Even the atheistic Jews see it as a special city, but they're not seeing it as a holy yeah, as city. Yeah, a Christian city. Uh, so, God is going to bring the Jews back to Him in the tribulation period and that's the whole thing purpose of the tribulation period is to be the 50th week of daniel and the completion of the of the prophecy of daniel and god will bring the jews to him because the whole world will come against them and they will see god stand up for them even though they don't deserve it just like we talked about this morning they don't deserve god standing up for them but god made an unconditional promise to abraham that he would protect his people and give them their land. But see, what I'm trying to say is that the Bible is all talking about, but it never talks because I guess we were created or whatever, the United States or the other country. And so, like, to me, it's like they're more important than we well, are. The thing you want to. We're not connected. Well, the thing you want to remember about the Bible. It's okay. only for that error then? Well, not just for that error, but yeah. it talks, in the beginning, it talk, talks about the whole world. God yeah. created the heavens and the yeah. earth. Then it goes through Genesis and all through Adam and Eve and, and Cain and Abel, and it's talking about the whole world. It gets to Noah, and we still continue with the whole world as they do. And then he calls one person out of all of that, and that's Abraham. From that point on, the focus is not on all the world, but on Abraham. Why is it on Abraham? Because he is going to be the, found, the family founder of the Jews, who will be the parent group of Jesus, who then brings us into Christianity going out to all the world again. Okay? Uh, could the Bible have talked about America? Yeah, God knew about America. It also doesn't talk about China or yeah. Japan well, not, I mean, or, just, or Africa. Right, and it focuses on them because that is God's people that he chose out of all the people yeah. of the world to bring the Messiah into the world and then... Like the prophets and all of Right, so everything is geared toward them. Where it started. Now, it does not mean that God has no plan for the rest of the world or forgot all about them. Uh, we saw the, the kings that came from the east to Jesus' birth. Why did they come? Because they knew that the Messiah was coming. They knew that the great king was coming. How did they know? Many different speculations. Some of it is that they might have learned it from the Israelites when they were in, in captivity and they learned of the, of the promise of the Messiah. Uh, there's a belief system that I believe in that the gospel's message is printed in the sky and they, and they were observers of the sky and said, okay, the king is, the king is coming and we've seen, his, we've seen the mark that he is coming. And, and I know that many people do not believe that the gospel is written in the skies and, you know, and a lot of mainline people will say, no, that's no way. Sorry, I believe it. I've read it. I've, I've looked at the original names of the stars. I've read the books on it. It's quite interesting, and the gospel is printed there, which makes sense because God put it in the beginning. Adam and Eve and them were told much. The days of the week are named after the planets in their order in all languages except for one. And the only language that they're not, not named in their order is the one that doesn't even name them because it's day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, and Sabbath. And that's the Jews. The Jews don't name their days. They're, they're named 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and Sabbath. 
And so they're the only one out there that doesn't name their days of the week in order. And it's been that way long before the astronomers found the, you know, supposedly found the, the planets. They were already named that. And I looked it up in many languages. I looked it up in all the European languages, it's true. I looked it up in several of the Asian languages through the use of the internet and translation. And looked it up in several of the African languages. And they're all named after the planets in order. And it's amazing, which shows you that God gave the information out uh, long before it was all planned out. Uh, so there's a lot out there that people don't comprehend because God, this book isn't an end-all absolute knowledge book. But where it touches any knowledge, it yes. is true. Okay? It's not a science book, but where it touches science, it's true. It's not a psychology book, but where it touches psychology, it's true. Okay. I guess what I'm, what, I, what I'm doing is that I don't like reading. I mean, put it that way, I don't read. But I decided the only book I want to read is the Bible. And that's good. That. And so instead of reading any kind of novel, I figured, no, I want to learn. I want mm -hmm. to learn something. So that's what I figured now. I've been focusing on this, you know, and I don't want to maybe later on on the other stuff, but I want to learn <coughs> this first. And like what you keep saying, what I keep out of my brain now is I'm hungry for the word of yes. God and I'm not hungry for food. That's well I, that's why I'm I'm psyching my brain out. Yeah. I'm hungry for the food, hungry for the word but not the food. So right. I'm trying to get rid of some And everywhere the Bible touches it, it is true. Yeah. Now Job is a great book. If you want to read about science, read you read now. Job and Job that, is full of science. You know, Job is full of the sciences that were supposedly discovered and then you know, in recent years. All the different diseases, and I mean, even things that I never thought that he would have in the Bible about women, yeah. or menstrual um, menstrual cycles. Yeah, I was amazed. There's there's so much in the Bible, and 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 just but because the Bible even talks about it doesn't mean it. And just because the Bible talks about something doesn't mean God approves it. Yeah. Okay, there's all kinds of incidences of rapes and murders and suicides. And it's not saying that God approves of all that. He's just saying simply they happened. And repercussions. And the repercussions for them happened. I was just reading something in the way the way it was worded it was just like something you would read right now and wow, it is something I would read right now that I didn't think they would have it in this book, you know. And by walking with the rules that God gives us will protect us. The Jews were protected during the Black Plague because they followed God's rules and they didn't get the plague because they cleaned their dishes when, when they found rodents you know, crossing it or destroyed them if they weren't cleansable. They, they washed their hands. They did all the things that protected them from the diseases and they didn't get the diseases. And so God's word is very valuable to us if we really want to study it and learn how he wants us to live, how we, the things he wants us to do. And it's not binding us under a whole bunch of laws and rules, but it no, teaches a lot us. Is like, it's like a medicine book. There's, there's medical stuff yeah. in it. God says that the life of the person is in the blood. And for years, doctors used leeches to take the blood out, trying to take the sick blood out of your body. And they killed many people because they were drawing the life of the person out of them. You know, and they did that to George Washington. They killed him by leeching him and on his bedstand right next to him was the book that said, the life of the body is in the blood. Well, I'm just like, uh, you know, you know, in a way all new to me because I'm really now focusing on it. It's just so neat. You yeah. know, like, wow. It's a book that is very valuable. And no, it's new to me every time I read it. And it'll always be new. I've been studying it for 44 years, and it's still new over and over and over again. And it's, it will always stay new because it's a living book. It's God-breathed book, and he will bring new things out all the time. And I've said it before. It's amazing to me. I'll be reading along, and I'll, and I'll come across a verse, and I'll go, God, when did you put that verse in there? I've read this so many times, and here's a brand new verse. It wasn't there last year. I know it wasn't there last year. Now, I know it was there, but I never noticed it before. It didn't come live. It didn't mean anything. And you'll find that the more you get to know about his book, the more things will start becoming alive, and different things will stand up and say, pay attention to me this time. 
and you know now that you know what Zion is, every time you read Zion now, yeah. you're gonna it's gonna stand out. And it's gonna mean more to you because now you know what it's talking about. Yeah. Uh, and this is what happens to us. The more we get to know His Word, the more it becomes alive, and the more that comes out of it, and the more it ties together into one solid book. And it's a great, it's amazing. Well, it's even like that one I think I asked you a week or two ago, so I wrote it down about, I didn't first believe that there was dinosaurs, and then you told me the thing, so I wrote that down. Mm -hmm. Now I understand it, what you said, but before I really didn't understand what they were talking about. If that was it, you know, that's what I asked you. And this is an amazing book written by 40 different men with no contradictions anywhere in it. Now I can guarantee I went to college and listened to professors teaching the same course or the same topic who disagreed with each other on just about every point they would talk about. <coughs> you, know, you, you, you can't usually even get the same author to write two books on the same topic without disagreeing with himself. It's pretty amazing if you read two author, the same author on, on, at two different periods in his, in, in his life writing on the same topic that he's an expert in, you'll find contradictions in his writing with himself. And God put together a book that has 40 authors over 1,400 year span with no contradictions. Yeah. The mathematical statistic for that is just, would be absolutely impossible. You wouldn't place a bet that you could get 40 people to write, you know, from all different backgrounds to write something that wasn't going to contradict itself. You know, so it's amazing. <laughs> All right, verse 3. God is known in her palaces for a refuge. Again, this is talking about Jerusalem. God is known in the palaces for a refuge. Okay? Now, that's not true so much today in Jerusalem, but it was true in David's day. It was true in, in, in uh, Solomon's day that God was known in, 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 in the city. Now, God is still known in Jerusalem, don't get me wrong, but like I'm saying, most Jews, the majority of the Jews right now are atheists. They don't believe in God. And some of it is because of everything the Jews have gone through. All right? They've been persecuted. Six million, you know, six, seven million of them killed in Hitler's day, still being persecuted everywhere they turn around. And persecution is rebuilding against the Jews. Yeah. It is amazing the persecution that the Jews are starting to face again the anti-Semitic climate that is being developed again in this world. And they feel it very strongly. And God is their refuge and will be their refuge. They don't know it at this moment, but God is still their refuge and what has protected them. When they were reformed as a nation, God protected them in those early years as a war. Every war they, they won. Everybody that came against them lost. And they would win over and over and again as God protected them. And you hear the stories that come out of there, God protecting them. He's still their refuge and will be their refuge. And it's very important. He's the stronghold. And we talk about this. God wants to be even our stronghold. As, we're, as we are adopted into Abraham's family, he is our stronghold. He is our protection. He is our refuge. We are to hide in him and he will protect us. Now, protection doesn't mean that he's going to keep us alive necessarily. It means that he is going to give us the strength to face whatever we have to face. And if that means that we die martyrs or go to prison or whatever, he is the one in control and he is the one that will give grace for it and a blessing will come out of it. Uh, whether it's a reward for being a martyr or a reward for being faithful to him in, in trials. And again, I bring out to you, how did the disciples always look at this? They looked at it, they, they looked at it with joy that they were worthy of suffering for their Savior. We need to get to the place where we're ready to, to say, I'm suffering for God, thank you. Right now, we're not suffering for God in America. There are places in the world where Christians are suffering greatly, but not America. We are moving in the direction of suffering here in America, and it's going to get worse. It is going to get worse uh, because that is what's going to happen. We're headed to the days of Noah. It means that the righteous will be put under attack and will have to seek their refuge in God. And it says, verse 4, For lo, the kings were assembled. They passed by together. They saw it, and so they marveled. They were troubled and hasted away. In other words, they were terrified. 
And this was true of Jerusalem for many, many centuries. The kings would come against it and be defeated. And David, as he's getting ready to take it, it says, it's almost a prophetic. We're going to be protected. And for years, nobody could take Jerusalem. Part of it was because it sat on the high mountain. You, you couldn't lob, you couldn't lob, you know, the catapults couldn't lob hard things against the walls because it was up on a mountain. You couldn't, couldn't get the catapults up there. You couldn't dig into the rocks to dig under it. It was a very fortified, protected city. Uh, and so natural protection of it in that day. No one knows its beginning either, does it? Uh, Jerusalem? No, uh, I don't know. I don't know if we know this beginning of it or not, but the Jebusites had it before David took it from them. And who are the Jebusites? Uh, one of the uh, citizens of Canaan that wasn't driven out by the, by the Israelites when they came in. Because they were harmless. Uh, I don't know about harmless. The Jebusites were not harmless, but they just weren't driven out. They hadn't had that position. They, well, they had a high position. I mean, in, in, a, in any battle plan, uh, battle, high ground is favorable. It's easy to defend. You see the enemy coming. It's easier to, to, fight, to fight downward than upward. Right. So in, even, even in recent days and recent years, you always want the high ground. Uh, and Jerusalem was high ground. And it was not an easy, easy battle, but God gave Jerusalem to David when he went, went, went on that attack to take Jerusalem. Uh, and that's why it's called the city of David, because he's the one that conquered it for Israel, and he set his kingdom up there. And it was a very strong city. To and, be able to set his kingdom up there and not destroy all of them, they must have made a pact to get along. Well, David, I don't know if David destroyed all the Jebusites or not, but you know, David wasn't as much, David's command wasn't to kill all the people in Canaan as the Israelites when they came into Canaan was. Uh, and as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, the problem was that the Jews did not drive all the people out of Canaan and did not kill them. They left many. They made a, they made a pact inadvertently with the Gibeonites who tricked them. They did not get rid of the Philistines. They did not get rid of the, the uh, Syrians and the you know, and a number of people that they did not get pushed out of the land. And they have paid for it ever since. Because those people are the ones that are giving them problems to this day. Now, all those people from that area that are now called the Palestinians and the, and the Jordanians and the Assyrians and all these people that we know of. And, and the Saudis are all in that area, and they're the ones that are the thorn in the, thorn in the side of Israel. And it all goes back to uh, the day of Joshua when the people did not fully drive out their enemies from the land that they were told to, to drive them out from and to kill them. And now they're paying the price for being disobedient. And disobedience always has a price to pay. Moses was disobedient when it came to see God said speak to the rock the second time he hit the rock in his because of his disobedience he was said you cannot go into the promised land and so he got to go up on Mount Pascal and look at the promised land but he did not get to go into the promised land because of his disobedience and we see this all through the scriptures David was disobedient to God and specifically with Bathsheba and Uriah and the consequence was that he had problems the rest of his life in his kingdom, mostly from his own family. Uh, we see this over and over. Solomon was disobedient to God. God said to the kings, do not multiply unto yourselves wives. And Solomon just had a few wives. <laughs> you know, around a thousand between the wives and concubines. Uh, you know, just, just a few. He multiplied just a few to himself and they led his heart away from God and into idolatry. We see it over and over in the scriptures. In, in Judges, the phrase was, they did what was right in their own eyes, and then God would judge them and put them into captivity. But dis dis disobedience has consequences. It's called sowing and reaping. Uh, and even to this day, when we're disobedient to what God says, there will be consequences that we pay for that disobedience. Doesn't mean that we're not forgiven. Doesn't mean that we're not... That God isn't going to impute righteousness to us, 
but he says, if you're disobedient, you pay the price. And that's hard sometimes to, to look at, but God has the whole thing. You disobey, you're going to pay the price. Same thing as we're supposed to do as we're raising kids. If they disobey, there should be a price they pay. Unfortunately, we're being told in this day that that's not what you're supposed to do. Don't discipline. You know, they, you know, they're they're basically good. If you just leave them alone, they'll be good. And such lies that we're that we're told. Um, but it said that the the kings looked on Jerusalem and marveled. It was a very beautiful city, especially after Solomon got done building the temple. People think it looks good with the gold-capped dome of the rock. Oh, Solomon's day, the, 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 everything was covered in gold. The entire temple was covered in gold. The pillars were in gold. You looked up on Mount Zion, and the flash of gold was what you saw. It was a beautiful, magnificent creation that he made. Even his soldiers were blown with they, they were, the, the, the ceremonial costume was gold, uh -huh. and their shields were gold. And that was all ceremony. That, no, that wasn't the way they looked all the time. No, you would never go to battle in, in gold. It was too soft. Solomon never Yeah, but you would never go to battle in, battle in gold. It was too soft. Uh, all right, fear took them. Uh, they saw it, and they marveled in return. Verse 6, fear took hold upon them there and pain as a woman in travail. Now you picture this. He's talking about some, you know, great fear. You know, they are trembling in fear. They are, they are looking at this. You know, if they had any idea of wanting to take that city, they're just like, this is not going to happen. You know, and the pain. Now granted, this is poetry. It's much deeper than, you know, you know they were even trembling, but I don't believe that they were they were trembling and, and in pain as a woman in travail. I think that's a little bit of poetic license there. Uh, you know, because that's a lot of pain. And just seeing a strong city is not going to cause that much pain in you. In you. Now, you're emotionally, if you wanted to conquer them, that might be that much pain, but not physical pain of that nature. Uh, but fear grabbed hold of them. You know, because of how strong this city is. It says in verse 7, you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. And an east wind, always, the eastern side of things in, in, in the Old Testament was always the side of trouble. Trouble always seemed to come from the east. And I don't know why. <laughs> don't ask me why. I, I, I've never looked it up, but trouble is always considered on the east. The same thing with the sea. The Jews looked at the sea. Anytime they reference the sea, it's usually in reference to it, and it's not just literally the great sea or something, but if they talk about the sea, they're talking about trouble and, and hardship. They did not look at the sea as, as something positive. They were, not, they were not known for being sailors. Mm -hmm. uh, they, had a, they were pretty much landlocked. Uh, Dan was kind of known for doing a little bit of sailing. In, in Galilee, they did sailing on the Lake of Galilee. Uh, now, we do know that the, the Israelites went other places because we have found shekels and stuff. Like on the east coast of America, they found shekels and evidence in, of Hebrew writing. So they know that the Jews at some point had somebody who went that far. Uh, to where? To the east coast of America. East. The south. Atlanta. The south, where you lived. Oh, okay. No, in Georgia, in Georgia, Florida, that area, no. they have found evidence of Jewish shekels. Shekels, their money. Oh, their money. Oh, their no. money and their writing has been found on the east on coast. The uh huh. I thought you meant shackles on the feet. Oh, shekels. No, <laughs> shekels. Their money. Oh. And I was trying to figure out how they could get there, but they can they can get there through the Mediterranean. There have been so many visitors to the America to right. the Americas before before Columbus and even before er Leif Erikson of the Vikings. This country has been visited by so many people over the years. The, the Polynesians made it, the Chinese made it, the Japanese made it. Uh, just about everybody in Europe made it. Africans. Uh, Africans made it. I mean, it, this, this was not, it was an unknown country in one sense because nobody's record ever recorded that they made it. But we have seen proof that all these groups have made it. We've seen their writings and their, and and their money, and, and a lot of them are still here. So, I mean, it's not a surprise. Uh, you know, we trace our roots back to 
you know, Columbus because he's the one that, you know, ended up bringing the Europeans here. Uh, but most of the Indians come from, you know, come from the Asian side of the world and, and came across the Bering Strait and down. And we know that that's a, that's a truth because their features and everything are the American Indians and the South American Indians all have Asian features in their, in their, in their, in their appearance. Um, not full Asian appearance, but you can see that they are of an Asian descent with the color of the skin and the and certain certain identifying marks on them. Uh, and we know that they came from that line coming from Noah's children who came this direction. Uh, and we know that Shem moved into the east, and so everybody on the in Americas are part of Shem's uh, Japheth's line, excuse me, <laughs> and Shem's line. Uh, so we know we know that we know the language breakdown and all these things. So we know that that happened. Uh, so you know, but the Jews, in the most part, looked at the sea as a terrible place. You know, not saying there weren't a few sailors in their in their group and everything, but for the most part, they looked at the sea, and when they refer to the sea, they're thinking about trouble. Uh, you know, Jonah went to sea and he ended up being swallowed by the great fish. Trouble. You know, that's and you see it over and over again when they talk about they talk about the trials from the sea and the and the storms from the sea, they don't look at the sea as a positive thing. And here they are saying, you know, hey, God, you're so strong, you're going to break the ships of Tarshish. And Tarshish was one of the great seafaring cities of that day. Uh, Jonah left from Tarshish. Uh, a lot of different things, you know, came, came from Tarshish. It was a seafaring community. That's not called Tarshish, is it? Uh, might be. I'm not sure on this one. It was still a seafaring nation, uh, city-state when Saul was alive. Still today. Yeah. It says, verse 8, As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. There's prophecy. God's going to establish Jerusalem forever. And he will establish it forever. And it's been there since as far back as we know. Uh, we believe that because it is at one point called Salem or peace, it is also where Melchizedek was the king of, the king of Salem, which was talking about Jerusalem. So we don't know how far back Jerusalem goes as a, as a town. I've never researched to see how far back, but it is in the Bible all the way back. It's still in there, still there today, will be there at the end of time because God's going to rule from Jerusalem. And then the new heaven and earth, he will bring Jerusalem back to be forever. Yeah. Because he has no beginning and no end, Melchizedek, it's an interesting, a lot of interesting theories and opinions, but that's all they are. Yeah. Melchizedek may very much have been a, been a uh, Christophany or may not have been. We don't know. Uh, we don't know when. We just have the one time he appears, and, and we know that... Abraham gave him a, an offering or a tithe, a tithe of everything that he had. So it was, he definitely saw him as greater than him, but as he was, and Abraham was a great man. So Melchizedek had some strong, strong evidences. I believe that he was a Christophany or appearance of Jesus before, before his birth. Uh, but I would never sit down and argue with somebody who really didn't believe that. I'm not going to sit down and argue with them. Uh -huh. It's... No, you know, but it's, it's Jesus. It belongs to God. Yeah. He makes it abundantly clear in more than one place. It's mine. The city is his. The and city is his. He's, and then you've got a man who came from nowhere without parents that we know of. Well, that's what Paul says, that he was a man with no parents. But he, so he was either Jesus or they just didn't know of any history of him. Right. But, but the thing so, is that it, because it belonged to God, God possibly had it set up and protected. And mm -hmm. uh, never mind. Yeah. There's a long one on that. Yeah, we don't want to get into Melchizedek uh -huh. too much. We'd be there forever. Sea of Galilee, is that a freshwater lake? Yes. It is. Yes. It's an inland inland large sea lake. All the mountains look yeah. stronger Yeah. It's, it's a freshwater. It flows into the Jordan, which is freshwater, and then flows into. It flows into the Dead Sea, and that's because there's no outlet for the Dead Sea, and that's why it, it, it just picked up all the salt and minerals in it and died. Okay, so in verse 8 it says, We have seen in the city of the Lord, 
of hosts in the city of our God. So twice in that verse, he's saying it's God's city. And it is God's city. And we see it that way. The, the Jews see it that way. And even, the, even the, the, the Muslims see it that way, even though they see it for the wrong God. <laughs> they see it for Allah and not for, for God. But they still see it as an important city. And, but it is God's city. And he says it's going to be his city. He's going to rule from his city. He's going to create a new Jerusalem to rule out of for all of eternity. You know, and this is an amazing thing. He's going to create a new city called Jerusalem that he's going to rule from for all eternity. And we, as we said, just a small city, just 1,500 15, 15, 15, uh, square uh, cube miles. <laughs> just, just a small place. Uh, Unreal. Huh? Unreal. And it's going to come down. Can you imagine looking at a city coming down from heaven, down to this earth, mm -hmm. that size? I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you see something like a plane coming down and it looks pretty amazing sometimes. You know, you see, you see some really big planes sometimes coming down and you're amazed. Here's a city coming down that's half the size of the United States. If it came down in the United States, it would cover half of it. And it's going to come down in the new, new Jerusalem, you know, where there's no, in the new world, where there's no seas, God says. So it's going to be just flat land, you know, to come down upon. And there's plenty of room for all of us to live. Plenty of room for everybody to live in that city. Verse 9, we have thought of your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple. God's loving kindness, his mercy. We want to be able to come out with that to remember, do we think about God's mercy? I love to be able to just sit down sometimes and think about God's mercy, what he has done for us that we don't deserve. Right, yeah. you know, or not giving what we deserve and just how merciful he is. And then look at all the things he, by his grace that he has given us that we don't deserve. It's amazing to think about God and how much he loves us. To just contemplate that love, contemplate the fact that he does not punish us the way we deserve. Because we look at this and say, God, I deserve, so, I deserve all this punishment. Thank you for your mercy. Just as we talked about, Abraham, Abraham lived a pretty bad life. If you really look at Abraham's life, he lived a pretty bad life in many ways. Lied to Pharaoh, lied to Abimelech. And he didn't learn his lesson with the, with the Pharaoh. He then turned around and lied to Abimelech and said it was his wife, it was his was his sister, which she was. It was, it was only a half, half, lie, half lie, but, uh, you know, because she was his sister, half-sister. Uh, but she was also his wife. The, the, the relationship was much more than a sister. And he lied to Pharaoh, then he lied to Abimelech. God was merciful to Sarah both times and, and, and rescued her and protected her out of the situation. Went into Hagar, presented, prevented, got all that that mess of, with Ishmael and the and the whole Middle Eastern problem is primarily Ishmael. He was disobedient, brought Lot out of it. Lot, as when he was rescued from from Sodom and Gomorrah, his wife was destroyed. He went up and hid in the mountains, and his daughters decided, you know, that we're we're going to die out here because he's not leaving this mountain. And we're not going to know any man. They got him drunk. They, they created incense. And they had two sons who were also problems for Israel with the Moabites and the Amorites, which are, are descendants of Lot, which are also then uh, side tangent descendants of Abraham, you know, by upward direction. And they've been a thorn in the side of the flesh of Israel. Then Abraham, after Sarah dies, goes and gets Keturah and a couple of concubines and has another, what was it, eight sons, I believe it was, that are now part of that whole mix of, mix of problems. You know, and all he's supposed to have is one. One son that was going to control and be blessed by being given all of that land. And so... Now, did God know all that other stuff was going to happen? Absolutely. He knew that it was going to happen. He knew all about But we think about how disobedient Abraham was, and yet God said, your faith is credited to you as righteousness. Think about that. When we get saved, our faith 
our trust in Jesus is credited as righteousness, and God looks at us forevermore as righteous. Even though we do dumb things, even though we do wrong things, even though we do sinful things, he says, I'm seeing you as righteous. I'm going to see you in the way my grace and my mercy sees you. Jesus paid the penalty. You're perfect. That's amazing. That is amazing that we're clothed in Christ and God says you're, we are perfect. And we've got to grab hold of that. Because how many times have people beat themselves up, maybe even us, have beat ourselves up because of the sins we've done and just won't forgive ourselves when God's already forgiven us? Mm-hmm. It's important for us to understand God has forgiven us because Jesus on the cross paid for sin. The only sin that is left for people is to reject Jesus Christ and try to appear before God in their own righteousness. And Isaiah says our righteousness is filthy rags. I like to say God has the ultimate dress code. You have to be dressed in Jesus Christ or you're not going to be accepted. Without him, you're, you're rejected. And he puts Christ on us when we accept Jesus Christ. He clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. And then from that point on, he sees us as perfect. Even though we do wrong things, we do dumb things, we do sin, you know, we commit sin, he looks at us and says, it's forgiven. We need to understand the power of the cross and what Jesus did on the cross to forgive us. He paid all sin to make us perfect in God's eyes as long as we accept him's sacrifice and are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's powerful. Jesus said, all things will be forgiven man except for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to say that you're not doing your job presenting Jesus Christ and rejecting Jesus because that's what the Holy Spirit's job is, is to convict us of sin. And the Holy Spirit comes in and lives in us and gives empowers us to live righteous, but his main job is to convict men of their sins and bring them to Christ. The only thing that's unforgivable is to reject Jesus. And it's important for us to understand that. Because Satan so often wants to come in and, and bombard us saying, oh, you're so, you're so bad, God could never forgive you. You're, you've just done something so bad that you cannot be forgiven. All of that is a lie from Satan. Everything is forgiven except for the rejection of Jesus Christ as, as Lord and Savior. We reject him in that position then we are trying to appear before God in our own righteousness, and he'll say, guilty, you're not perfect. And it's very important, the power of the cross, the power of salvation, the finished work on the cross, that Jesus paid everything, and I don't have to do anything anymore to please God. Will I do things as he comes in and changes my life? Yes and no. It's not me who does them. I can't do anything that's going to please God in my flesh because it would be my flesh. But he comes into me, he crucifies my flesh, and he lives out of me. And then I do good things because it's him living out of me. It's not me trying to do good things. Does that mean I just give up and I don't do anything good? No, I, I let God crucify me and I do the best that I can not because I'm wanting to please God, but because I love him so much, I want him to live through me. Crucifixion is the key. Or, as we talked about the, a couple of weeks ago, becoming a pickle. We're so, we're so much in the Holy Spirit that he changes who we are and changes us. If you don't like that, when we look at I, you know, Romans, 2, uh, Romans 12, 2, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, by the washing of the word. God changes the way we think and changes who we are to become more like him. You can take any of the pictures. How do we grow in Christ? He says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. If you don't abide in me, you will not produce fruit. We have to be taking our nutrition from him, which changes who we are into him. And he produces fruit. You know, no matter what place you look in the scriptures on our, on our description, it is God doing the work. He makes us part of his family, and when we become part of his family, we become like him because we are his family. 
And we talked about that a couple days ago. The more you, the, you can usually tell who belongs to what family by little idioms they say and the way they say things and, and certain things that they pick up from their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents. You can see that line of thought, line of statements, line, you know, whether we like it or not sometimes. <laughs> sometimes they say things we wish they hadn't picked up from us. But we could tell that they say certain things that are, that are just part of that family. And God is saying, it is him, it's his city. He's going to establish that city. We think on his loving kindness. And I hope we think about it as part of the meditation. We meditate on what God has done for us, how good he is for us, the, the salvation that he's given us. It says, verse 10, according to your name, O God, so is thy praise unto the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. According to his name. And we've talked many times, the name. The name is not just the name. It is everything that's represented in his name. It is the authority, the power, everything that's represented in his name. It isn't just saying, well, in the name of Jesus, I pray. That is not praying in his name. I may be invoking his name, but I may not, may or may not be praying in his name. Praying in his name is everything about who he is, his reputation, his authority. And we talked about that. As an ambassador goes over to another country. They are representing that country. Everything they do, say, you know, what and how they act is represented is what they think that country is like. So if you are a bad ambassador bringing shame to your country, you're going to be recalled because you're doing dumb things. You're, you're, you're bringing shame to the name of your country. We are, in, we are the ambassadors of Christ in this foreign country that we live in. And we want to remember, this world is not our home. There's an old story about two missionaries coming back from, from missionary spending their entire life in Africa, I believe it was, and they come back on a, on, a, on a boat. On this boat is Roosevelt. And when they get back to the dock, there's a big band on the, you know, big band and a celebration. Roosevelt has come home. And, the, and the, man, the missionary man goes, why isn't anybody here to celebrate for us? And his wife wisely said, we're not home yet. <laughs> we're not home yet. We will not be home until we die and we cross into heaven. Then we will be home. Amen. Then we will get the reward for everything that we've gone through and done. Not before. Because God says the reward is going to be in heaven. The reward is eternal. Jesus said, put your treasures in heaven where rust and moth don't corrupt, where thieves cannot steal. Our reward is in heaven where we will never lose it. For all of eternity, we will never lose the reward that God gives us because of what we allowed him to do through us on this world. This is not our home. We don't want to ever feel comfortable in this world because we are ambassadors. We are representing the king, our king, in this world. That's just me. I said, because I'll be reading this, I was thinking about my mom safely home. I'm home in heaven at last. And I said, I am safe home at last. Uh-huh. Yep. And heaven is our home. We will be at home when we're in heaven. We will not have the trials. We will not have the tribulations. We will not have bad things happening to us anymore because we will be home. While we're ambassadors, we represent another, another government, another king. And this is why it's important for us to live correctly in this world because we are representing another world, another government. And we are not, this is not our home. This is not, you know, we're, we're, we're aliens in this world mm -hmm. because of who we are in Christ. And then it says, all the praise unto the ends of the earth, your right hand is full of righteousness. Who remembers what the right hand, what the right hand means? Acceptance. Acceptance, the side of acceptance. His right hand, his side of acceptance holds, is full of righteousness for us. Righteousness that we don't earn, but it is full. He's got a full hand. We're consecrated. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. 
going back to Jerusalem, and even more, oftentimes Jerusalem, Zion and Jerusalem are interchangeable, but Zion is so much more than Jerusalem. It's the, it's the spiritual side of Jerusalem. It's the spiritual city of God. Jerusalem is a city of God, but when they use Zion, they're really saying this is God's city. This is, the, this is where he rules. Zion is a little deeper than Jerusalem. We can interchange Jerusalem for it, but it is a little deeper because of its depth to God. And it says, let Mount Zion rejoice and let the daughters of Judah rejoice. You know, this is so important because of his judgments. And God's judgments are always perfect. Walk about Zion and go around about her. Tell the towers thereof, mark you well her bulwarks, consider her palaces, that ye may tell it to all generations following. And he's saying, look at the power. Look at the power. Go around Zion. Circle around the city. See the, see the magnificent wall. See the tower. See the defenses of Jerusalem. And mark it well. You know, mark well. Consider. Think about you know, her palaces, her citadels. And tell it to the generations. Recount it. Witness. God is saying, let everyone know that it's his city. And it's strong. It won't be defeated. And the last verse, for this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. Even unto death. He's our guide. And I love this. He, uh, this is God for this God is our God. This is written in a time when there were many gods. And you know, amazingly, we're getting a lot more gods in this world again. There are a lot of people worshiping false gods in this world again. And we're seeing a lot of that old gods coming back. I was reading an article saying that one of the, one of the state legislatures started their session with a prayer, with a Wicca priestess praying for it. And it was boycotted by a number of the representatives who, who left and had a prayer session outside. But we're seeing all of this coming about. Prayer to whoever, whatever goddess, whatever god. We're seeing prayers to Allah being accepted in this country. We're seeing all this stuff going on, which just takes us back to the earlier days. Wicca is witchcraft, and witchcraft is satanic. Am I right or wrong? Yes, and it's bottom line. There is no such thing yeah. as white witchcraft. Right. They, they, they will tell you they practice white witchcraft or natural oh, yeah, magic rather than, rather than satanic, so satanic worship. The uh, there is no difference. There is no difference between the two powers. They're all, they're all the same source of power. Uh, well, cause I met somebody and they said, because I could tell they were a different. Oh, well, I asked them if they believe in God. I forget how it came up. I believe... I study white witchcraft. I said, well, what is that? Because you may be on something sometimes. <laughs> and they said, it's good. I said, I never heard of it. <laughs> I yeah. thought witchcraft is witchcraft. No in God, in God's terms, it is. In the world. Like, you got the good witch and the bad witch. Yeah. You know, they could think wrong. anything they want to. Yeah. God's already said what like he thinks. Is and this is what we talked about in, in the Sunday school class. God has a standard, a perfect standard. And in God's world, you either do what he says or it's sin. There's no shades of gray. Now, we as humans like to see shades of gray and all, you know, all this different in between. But God says, this is true, this is, this is correct. Now, I can miss it by an inch or by a million miles. I'm still missing his standard if I don't follow his standard. And we're in a world now that says there's no absolute standard. Okay. Now, the people who tell you that there's no absolute standard do not believe that there's no absolute standard. The only thing is they believe that their standard is the standard by which everything has to be, be, be accepted. And it's very interesting because they know right from wrong. Because God has put that in our heart. God has put in our heart right and wrong. He has put the absolutes in our heart. And I've said this before. I used to love getting people in the college that would tell me that there's no absolute, and I'm going, you're absolutely sure there's no absolute, and if that didn't stop them, I'm going, okay, so there's no, no right or wrong unless you believe it's right or wrong. Yeah, 
and I and I grabbed something of theirs. You know, if it was a, a woman, I'd grab their purse, or if it was a man, I'd grab their keys or something, and I I'd walk away. And they go, "What are you doing?" I go, "Well, I got to go sell my new house and car." They go, "You can't do that. That's mine." I go, "I don't have a problem with it." Well, it's not right. I go, "You just told me there's no absolute right or wrong, so I have no problem with it. So I'm going to be wrong." <laughs> you know, when push comes to shove, everybody knows that there's absolute truth. Yes. Okay, if you're going to take something that belongs to them, they know that it is absolutely wrong. Mm -hmm. Even when they tell you that there's no absolute truth. And if I walk up to this person over here, and I say, you know what, you're ugly and just cold back them, I bet you that they'll find wrong in that. And and this is just it. And then, then the other side of the coin is whatever they think is true is, is, is the standard for truth. If you violate what they say, what they think is true, they have an absolute. It's just not your absolute uh, you know, or God's absolute. It's, it's where, and this is, why this, this is why we're in a hard time in this age because we have this sliding you know, form of absolute depending on who you're talking to. And no matter what they believe, they have an absolute. They have a place where it's wrong. You know, they have a place where you've crossed the line and it is absolutely wrong. It may be pretty low compared to God's, or it could be real close to God's, but it's still a place where they say you've crossed the line. And that's why it's so important that we say, okay, God, here's your absolutes. Can I live up to God's absolutes? No. But I, my goal is to try to live up to his absolutes through his power because it is his absolute. It, in God's world, it is white and black. You're either doing what he says or you're not. Now, you might have shades of gray. You might, you know, and one of the great things, we talked about it in the Leviticus class, is the idea of lying. Okay? We feel as long as I don't say something wrong, say something that's a lie, it's a lie. Or a white lie. Or a, or a little lie or a half-truth. In Leviticus 5, God says that if you know something is true and you do not say it, in the court, you've lied. A lie of omission. I don't tell you the whole truth. I just tell you, I don't tell you anything wrong in what I say. I just don't tell you all of the truth that I know. And God says, that's a lie. You have not been truthful. You have lied by not telling the whole truth. And it's pretty amazing. God's standard is so high. Then you look at what Jesus says, where he says, if you have looked at somebody lustfully, you've committed adultery or fornication in your heart. If you are angry with a brother, you've committed murder in your heart. Okay, that's how high God's standard is. Okay, now, it's not the same thing, you know, we don't want to say, well, because you committed it, go ahead and go do it. No. Okay, <laughs> the consequences are very different way between doing it in your heart and doing it physically. But God says, as far as he's concerned, you're already guilty. The consequences aren't as bad, but he is, you're guilty. And we've got to be careful about this. God's standards are very high, so high that he proves that we can't keep them. And that's the whole reason for the standard to be so high. All through the scriptures, he was making things more and more difficult. When we, in our day and age, look at when God said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, we, men, we look at that and say, boy, that's harsh. But in the day God gave it, if you harmed me, I was perfectly in my rights to ride into your, ride into your campsite and kill everybody in your campsite and take everything that you possessed. And I was within the law to do so because you harmed me. So when God said an eye for an eye, he was restricting them greatly. Okay. He says, no, you can't ride into that camp and take everything they own just because they... They, they, they offended you or broke your arm or, or knocked you off your horse or whatever. He goes, you can knock them off their horse or you can break their arm, and that's as much as you can do. You can do an equal amount of damage. And then Jesus goes even further, you know, further on to say, don't even think about it. Okay? The power of the scriptures, it keeps getting more and more in-depth, more and more intense as God slowly brings them deeper and deeper into his truth. And we want to be careful about this because God is out there. He's wanting to say, I've got rules for you, and they're higher than you can keep. They're more than the society is going to say. say. Uh, hope you don't have to erase God's standard will stand, and any other standard absolutely 
will crumble and fade away. If not in this world, definitely when they stand before the throne judgment seats. When they stand before God on the white throne judgment and they say, well, this was my standard, God's going to say, no, we're not starting at your standard. We're starting at my standard. The bad thing is he could even start at their standard because they're not going to keep their own standard. Okay. People do not even keep their lower standard than God because the flesh will not follow rules. Mm -mm. Even if they're your own rules that are less than God's rules, you're not going to obey even your own rules because the flesh will try to twist any rule. So we, even if he started at their standard, he's going to say you failed because they're going to violate their own standard. Mm -hmm. And we've all been there where this is our standard of truth unless I'm in a certain situation and all of a sudden I fail it. Okay, I'm going to tell the truth most of the time. I may not tell all the truth, but I'm going to tell the truth. And then we get into a situation where telling the truth might make us look bad or get us in trouble, and we don't tell the truth because it's going to make us look bad or get us in trouble. Uh, so we violate even our own standard of rules. And this is why it's so important for us. God's standard is high, and even we will even violate our lower standards. So God can start at our standards and say, well, your standard's not even high enough, but you violated standard. You violated your own conscience. And this is why we know that when God stands before the judgment, when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that God will be totally in his rights to condemn them. Because they're not even going to keep their own standards. They're not even going to keep their own rules, much less his rules. And they will be rejected because they're not perfect. And so it's very important that we look at that. We need to be aiming for God's standard at all times, and that's through his grace and his mercy and his changing of us that we can even approach that standard. And we may never reach it, but we should be getting closer and closer to his standard with each passing day and year, month, <laughs> whatever, take your, take, take your period of time you want to use it, we should be coming closer and closer to him. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us. We thank you that you give us mercy, you give us grace, that you, that you are our true life that we live through you and that we ask that you help us to learn to crucify our flesh in all the areas that we are not following you in and that you will help us live the way you want by living through us through our crucified flesh and we just thank you in jesus name amen